Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to History Becomes Her, a mashable podcast about women making history right now and the women who paved the way for them. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson, senior reporter at Mashable. Diane Munday isn't a household name, but it should be. Munday helped legalise abortion in Britain in the 1960s. Her campaigning has not only changed women's lives in this country, but saved them. Monday had a termination in 1961, when it was illegal. Her husband's salary meant that she was able to afford the procedure, but a friend of hers, who had a backstreet abortion, died. Monday went on to fight for the legalisation of abortion in Britain, and over 50 years after the 1967 Abortion Act was passed, Monday is fighting for legal reform. Along with journalist Vicky Spratt, Monday is campaigning for the decriminalisation of abortion in England and Wales. Spratt has also changed the law. Her Make Renting Fair campaign resulted in the government banning letting agency fees for tenants. Now, Spratt and Monday, two women who've already changed the law, are campaigning for legal reform with their I'm a Criminal campaign. So today we're doing things a little bit differently. We're at the home of abortion campaigner Diane Monday. I'm Diane Monday. I'm now retired because I'm very ancient. Um, I was one of the prime people who achieved the 1967 Abortion Act. And we're joined by the journalist Vicky Spratt. I'm Vicky Spratt. I'm a journalist and campaigner. I'm features editor at Refinery29, where I'm working on a campaign with Diane to try and get abortion decriminalised. Diane, you campaigned during the 1960s to, to legalise abortion. I did. This is a podcast about women who've made history and who've brought about change with their activism. But my question, my first question for you is, who inspired you? Um, was there a particular woman that was in your thoughts or served as inspiration to you when you started campaigning in the 60s? I knew somebody, and the first time I ever heard the word abortion was in my early 20s. Unlike now, it was a word that was never said never spoken. And a young woman I knew, a young married mother with three children, actually died from a backstreet abortion. I had had three children in three and a half years, and there I was pregnant again. There was no pill in those days, and I just knew 
I couldn't have that child. I had reached my limit. Might sound a bit wimpish, but in fact, for me, that was my limit. I bought an abortion from a doctor in Harley Street, having seen a psychiatrist and being told or had a certificate saying I was suicidal at the thought of another child. And when I came round from the anaesthetic, I found I was remembering that woman in very parallel circumstances to mine who had died, but there was one difference. I had or could raise money. She couldn't. She lost her life. I was still alive. I found to myself then that I would, if needs be, spend the rest of my life campaigning so that women who didn't have money to go to Harley Street could have the... It shouldn't be a privilege, but it was, and for many women still is, but the right to make their own decision about whether they had children, whether they had any at all, or the numbers. And that is really the two things, hand in hand, inspired me to keep campaigning. So, Vicky, I think um, you're now campaigning, you know, it's 50, 52 years since the, the Abortion Act was passed, and now you're campaigning to decriminalise abortion in England and Wales. And so I wanted to know, first of all, yeah, who who inspires you, I think, is my first question to you. Well, women like Diane, I think uh, activism is so trendy now um, and Instagrammable. And you'd think that millennials invented it, but we didn't. People like you, Diane, have been trying to make the world a better place for other women, for people because abortion doesn't just affect women um, forever. And I think that is what really inspires me, just to get on with it. And as a journalist, you're so fortunate to have a platform. And I'm not really a campaigner in the traditional sense in that I am a journalist. So through investigations and through reporting, I can highlight issues. And I think where it's possible to do that, I always try to. And being able to shine a light on the work you did back in the 60s and now do this campaign with Refinery29, I think, is really testament to what journalism can do. And it was the same with the letting fee ban. I was not the first person to ever start talking about that. Um, Loads of people had been trying to get it changed for years. Um, So I was able to just draw some more attention to it through my work. So I'm really inspired by people like you because... That's nice to hear. (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. And I think you're not out there talking about yourself, which a lot of my generation seem to be doing on the internet. Yeah, Diane, you mentioned that you'd never campaigned before in your life. And, you know, I I wanted to ask you how you really got started. What were the first things that you did to kind of get organising? Well, I'd already made up my mind that I believed there were circumstances in which abortion should be the right choice. And I happened to see a letter, I think it was the Sunday Times, from the then almost defunct Abortion Law Reform Association, which had actually got going in the mid-1930s. During the war, it fell into abeyance, obviously. After the war, there were much more polite campaigns to be fought 
for the health service, for education, for housing. And again, abortion fell into the background. But this committee had kept going, not really doing very much. And the association at the time of the Lismites, the chairman wrote a letter, which I saw in one of the Sunday newspapers, I responded to it and discovered there was an abortion law reform association, went along to their next AGM and found myself on the committee. I decided that I had to say I have had an abortion because I began to realise that it was common experience of women everywhere. It was just something that was never talked about. The first talk I gave was to an afternoon Towns Women's Guild, and this was because elderly ladies went to the afternoon meetings, the young ones went to the evening ones when there was somebody to look after the children went along in fear and trembling and they were all very respectable ladies wearing hats and gloves and I said I have had an abortion and in the tea interval they came up to me one after the other and this became my routine experience and it slowly impinged on me that this was women's common experience everywhere. Even my own mother told me of a very close relative she'd nursed after a backstreet abortion when she got over the shock of hearing me say this. Um, it really struck me that actually a lot of the campaigns that we have today, um, Me Too for instance, yes. which are based in women's stories and rooted in women coming together and talking about things that have taboo and stigma attached to them, like sexual harassment or abortion, say, no, this has happened to me, this is what it looked like, this is how it felt, this is why we need change. It was exactly the same exactly thing that you were doing. I think this is the second battle we still have to fight, which is to get rid of the stigma, to make people feel it's all right to feel all right if you have terminated an intolerable pregnancy. The anti-abortion lobby have been very unsuccessful in achieving anything material except making women feel guilty. I think that's it. And this is the power of women's stories. Shame and stigma and taboo exist to keep us silent. And in talking about abortion in saying this is why I had one, this is why I needed one, this is why it's my right to choose what I do with my body, my future, you are going some way towards getting rid of that shame and there should be no shame attached. And yet it's still talked about in hushed tones, something to be ashamed of. Well you've been called a murderer, haven't you? I've still got letters. Oh, yes. I had red paint poured over the bonnet of my car when it was parked outside one of our clinics and a notice put under the windscreen wipers, this is the blood of the children you have murdered. But I think the important point here is that that was happening when you were campaigning for the 1967 Abortion Act. 
Well, I was reporting um, for, for Refinery29, I did a story about uh, an abortion clinic in Bournemouth. The clinic staff were telling me, and this is all in the article, yeah. they are called murderers daily. This is still happening. They are followed to their cars in the dark and called murderers. The ab anti-abortion campaigners who stand outside this clinic put babies' socks on the hedge oh so that women who have had terminations are coming out and seeing that. They go up to the vans that deliver equipment and they say, are you, are you a murderer as well? This is still happening. And I think that's why we wanted the campaign that we're doing with Diane, that Refinery29 is doing with Diane, to be shocking. That's why it's called I'm a criminal. Yeah. Some people have said, oh, that's so insensitive. How could you call it I'm a criminal? And what I would say to them is, well, abortion is still... you are a criminal. It's a criminal offence yes. to have an abortion. And symbolically, for as long as that is the case, these people who stand outside clinics harassing women, calling them murderers like they did to you okay. in the 60s. Yes. Oh, they still do. But, but the law legitimises that. Yeah. The law underpins it. Unless you pay the very tight or, or comply with the restrictions which we had to allow through in 1966 to get anything at all, unless they comply with these, like having two doctors who might never have seen them before, are making a decision that will affect their lives forever. Um, is written into law. I knew that was wrong when we passed the law. That is why I only drank, drank half of a glass of champagne um, when we were sitting on the terrace of the House of Commons celebrating. I said our job is only half done. I was bitterly opposed to giving doctors that power over women's bodies and of excluding women who happen to live in Northern Ireland. But I think it's a really important point that whenever you want to get anything through Parliament, you, you will not get the, law, the exact law that you right. want. So before I was a journalist, I worked at Parliament. Um, it was actually when the Health and Social Care Bill was going through the Commons in 2008, which is how I know so much about it. And when I first started out as a very lowly like work experience, one of my jobs was to go through the post. And it shocked me to see how many letters the MP I was working for at the time got from people who wanted abortion to be illegal again. And that's why we're doing this campaign, because most people don't realise that it's still a criminal offence, that the anti-abortion lobby are out in force every day outside abortion clinics. They're writing to members of parliament every day. And I recently interviewed Diana Johnson, who's an MP who's tried to get decriminalisation through the Commons repeatedly. But yeah. she said to me, you can never underestimate, even amongst other MPs, the strength of feeling about abortion because for, for some reason still today, whether it's because of religion or um, other beliefs, well, people cannot get their head around the idea that it's just up to a woman what she does. And I think that's the point we need to get to where it's not even remarkable anymore. Like we just know a woman can do whatever she wants with her body, 
when she wants to, and it's nobody else's business but hers. So I'm actually the same age as you. I was born in 1988 and I, I mean, I've always lived in England. My parents are Northern Irish um, and I've never lived in a country where abortion is illegal. And I think that for a lot of people our age, it's really hard to imagine the kind of oh, living in a world. I think there's a lack, sometimes a lack of, there's that empathy gap. You know, it's hard to understand what it is like to live in a country where abortion is illegal and I, I wanted to know what life was like or what what it was like to be a woman in her reproductive prime living in a country before abortion was legalised. It was hard. Women were at the mercy of their fertility. I think in the years immediately following the Abortion Act, the number of people who've come up to me, strangers, many of them, and said, you, what you did has given me hope, has given me the courage to follow up my dreams of a career because I know if I can achieve whatever it is, it won't be cut short by an unplanned, unwanted pregnancy and the fact that I cannot continue. You have given me the privilege of being able to plan my life and know that that plan can come to fruition because women's lives, their hopes, their promotions were cut short by unwanted pregnancies. And that, I think, is a feeling your generation can't imagine. You know that you can plan ahead and there is a reasonable chance that those plans for people, and remember, contraception was very, very in its infancy. It was not reliable, I learned that, to my cost. And I think we have to remember, this wasn't that long ago. We talk about um, feminism as though its work is done. We talk about progress. We take so much for granted. We watch The Handmaid's Tale and we're like really shocked and we don't connect that actually the reason why Margaret Atwood's writing about that dystopia is so shocking and so brilliant is because it's not that far off where we were. And, we, and it's where the USA is heading again. But also, we get so distracted in the moment in all the noise of like yes. Donald Trump and Brexit and it's so hard to keep up with everything. But it's all linked. It's all linked. Oh, yeah. And Boris Johnson's voting record on abortion, our current Prime Minister, right? He's never voted on it. Now, so obviously what you've uncovered in your reporting is that a lot of people aren't aware that the Victorian era law was never repealed. It was never, you just legislated over it. Yes, we made exemptions from it. Right. And what are the implications of still having that that Victorian era law in place? Because people, people don't really know, first of all. Right, and it's super complicated. And I think I don't want to scare people. You're not going to be arrested for having an abortion. Right? You are if you buy a, well, an abortion pill on the internet. Yeah, so that's one of the real world right now implications of the 1861 Act. It's sections 58 and 59. 59. If we say any woman being with or without child who uses a noxious thing in attempt to procure a miscarriage 
is guilty of a criminal offence and could be sent to prison for life. She knows it off by heart. And wow. the, it <laughs> is also true of any doctor or anybody who helps her. So, the, so I think what that means is, if you were to buy abortion pills online, which we know some people do, if they can't get to a clinic or they are in an abusive relationship and they don't want their partner to know they're having an abortion. Or even they can't visit a, a clinic. Right. You would, in you, a rural area. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Then you would have committed a criminal offence and in theory, and this has happened in has England, happened. you could be prosecuted. So we need to get rid of sections 58 and 59 because that shouldn't be the case. And Northern Ireland has now got rid of it. Yes. So we need it's to overturned all of the convictions, yes. essentially. Well, there was one woman who's had a conviction hanging over a trial for getting pills for her 16-year-old daughter, who the next day was had the whole thing collapsed. And there had been cases here. Yes. And, you know, one thing that is never mentioned is the huge expense and the other premise is what the Abortion Act says, that an abortion must be performed on NHS premises or a place specially approved for the purpose. Now, all the private and charitable abortion clinics have to be specially approved. Every bit of their paperwork, which is huge, nobody mentions the paperwork. Yeah. The certification by the two doctors, which has to be with the Department of Health within seven days, that it is reported on the proper forms. I think the point is right, like an early medical abortion where you take two pills, misoprostol and mifepristone, that, that is one of the safest yeah. medical procedures in the world, according to the World Health Organization. Yeah. It's the safest medication. They're on the essential medicines list. Right. What are the implications? So I think that the science has moved on. Yes. The, med the medication has moved on and we need a law that reflects that. Right. And under no circumstances, again, this comes back to the original point, right? That it's symbolic that it's a criminal offense. I will never forget being 17, one of my friends at school became pregnant yeah. and we couldn't get to, I'm from just outside Croydon, South London, we could only get an appointment for her at a clinic in central London. Right. So we got the train, it was about a 40 minute train, to go to this clinic so she could have a consultation, decided to have a medical abortion so she was going to take the pills. We had to go to that appointment, come back a week later she could then have her appointment to get the pills, 40 minute train. She had to take that pill at the clinic yeah. and then we had to get the train back and she was already having a miscarriage. Yes, many women that happened to. Yeah. Horrendous stories of them being ill because the law is an ass, we all know, and that one is a particularly asinine ass, that you take the pill in the premise, uh, which brings about a miscarriage, yeah. you can then go and have your abortion in a taxi, on a train, on the and way again, home. Pointless. Yeah. yeah. The, the point is that, again, we can't take any progress for granted, right? Yeah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Right. And like the women in Northern Ireland, for instance, because women were traveling over to, to the mainland, to, to oh, England, yes. to, to get you know, safe legal access yes. to abortion. And flying back. Right. Just after um. having had an abortion on a plane. I mean, I reported on the, that in Northern Ireland and in, I was in Belfast interviewing women there, mm. some of whom had had their homes raided because they were suspected of buying pills online yes. and some of whom had travelled for abortions. And one woman, her name's Naomi, she's actually um, with Alliance for Choice now right. as a result of what she went through. Yeah. And she was telling me that she was really, really, really sick when she was flying back from England. Yeah. Appalling. Like, That's horrendous. And with no good medical reason, moral reason, taking that pill is legal. Yeah. But you had to swallow it on the premises. Yeah. Um, and again, this is why we wanted to call the campaign I'm a Criminal, because that is how women are being made to feel. If you're in that situation, of course you feel like you've done something wrong. And I think... Yeah. Still with abortion, something that strikes me so much whenever I go to abortion clinics to interview staff or um, service users is the incredible compassion that is always, always, always in the room. Um, And we need to have a conversation once and for all that gets rid of the shame, the stigma, the sense that there is anything wrong with ending a pregnancy if you've chosen to do it. Because... If I got pregnant right now, it would be a disaster. I'm not in a financial position to have a kid. Um, I just came out of a long-term relationship. I wouldn't be able to do it. And that is as good a reason as any, right? I think this is really important too. I don't know how we get to a point where men are more involved in this conversation. As I see it, 100% of pregnancies are caused by sperm, right? Yes, exactly. It takes two. I think we need men to get involved and want better abortion laws and to talk about how abortion has influenced their lives too because a a problematic or unwanted child is is a problem for everyone involved absolutely and one of the articles most of all for the child to be unwanted what do we all want most to be loved wanted we do want absolutely and i think um one of one of the articles we 
put out at Refinery29 in the launch week of the campaign was men sharing their abortion stories. Yeah. And I'd really, really like for there to be more of that. I think that that was a topic that came up as well recently with, in the US. And I think that mm. there was a lot of, um, you know, I follow a lot of uh, abortion rights uh, activists um, who are based in the States. And they were saying, like, now is the time men to speak up and to join this chorus of voices like I feel like in those times where you do where women's you know the right to choose is under threat like we it doesn't it shouldn't just be women who are vocal on and, and Twitter and social media now is you know that's where activism is a lot of the time it feels and and I think that they were saying you know now is your time to speak up and and I feel like that about me too as well or why I didn't report we can't do all the emotional labour all the time. Yeah. You can't have these things happen in your life and then be expected to tell the story, to change the law, to hold people to account and do all of that work. Women do so much work. We talk about this mental load, right? Exactly. Like all of the things we've all got going on in our heads all the time. Like I recently started dating again and I think that's partly why I'm thinking about abortion law so much because yeah. men are, the men I'm going on dates with aren't thinking about what would happen if no. something went wrong. But that's always in the back of my mind. Like, well, oh, imagine how it was you asked me how it was before. Right. I mean, when I was young, one sexual act could ruin the whole of your life. Yeah. And completely change its course. And it still can. Yeah. I can give you an example that it did. When I went to grammar school and I had a friend who disappeared. Wow. Just off being there. Many, many years later, I was on holiday with my husband and family in Wales. We went into a cafe and there was my ex-friend, who shall be nameless, serving at the tables. We immediately recognised each other. She had been in line for a scholarship to Cambridge. She was in the upper wow. six. She had become pregnant. She'd been sent to, back to her Welsh grandmother. So nobody where we lived, her parents, anybody knew. Right. And then she was serving in a cafe. And she'd just been sent off? Just been sent off because her parents' friends couldn't know or anybody. Yeah. It was so shameful. And, and she was one of millions. There was no future for women. And that always had to be in your mind. And until we have something like universal childcare, right? Yeah. Like, it blows my mind, again, that our generation are not out on the streets marching and demanding that. Why yeah. is childcare not free? Why is it so expensive? Like, you want to know why we've got a gender pay gap? Because that is why. <laughs> childcare is so expensive. Yeah. So these things, again, they're all linked. The decision and the, the thought that goes into thinking about whether you're going to have a child and whether it's the right time, whether you can afford it, whether you can take the time out of your career. Yeah. All of this stuff is linked and we don't have the structures in place to support women. No. And I, well, I remember, again, outside this clinic in Bournemouth, I was talking to the anti-abortion protester. I'm glad you went there, Diane, because you would have not... I know the clinic well. You wouldn't have um, <laughs> been able to keep your cool in this conversation, I don't think. But she was saying to me, well, we can adopt more children. Oh, God. 
But these are the things that women have to factor in. We factor it in every single day. I mean, what, when I'm going about my day-to-day -day work, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, I'm worried about my fertility, I'm 31, I'm single. And then I'm also thinking like, oh, yeah. I'm going on a date. Um, I really like don't know where that's gonna go. Like, oh, the time's ticking. Like, oh, but I need to save more money. And then I'm like, oh, you know, maybe he's gonna stay over. Yeah. Like, what are we gonna do about contraception? Like, do I yeah. need to buy some condoms? Like, these are all the things that we are thinking about and having to plan for. Yeah, mine's the same, exactly, because yeah. I'm also 31 and I'm also single. And I'm also like, we've, we've grown up with this like, oh, you mustn't leave it too late. Well, can you imagine how it was right. before? Yeah. I would love to hear what you have to say because you're a person who has, I mean, you are both, I'm sitting in front of two women who've changed the law. And I, I think that so often we feel powerless as citizens, um, as members of the electorate. And we, we think, what can we do? Like, and I would love to know how, yeah, how do you change the law? We have systems in place that can affect change. And they're not particularly glamorous and they're not particularly Instagrammable. Sending an email to your MP who is your elected representative and by law has to read what you send them because it's their job right. um, is not something you can really like do a story about on Insta, but it will bring something about. And I think that is the point I would want to get across. Yeah. But oh, I think they're both useful. But something I found when I was doing a lot of work on the letting fees yeah. stuff and that was just before the Tenant Fee Act came through. I think it's important to protest and I think it's important to exercise that right. But equally, the most ground gained was when I was sitting on panels at Conservative Party conference, right. talking alongside their then housing minister, Gavin Barwell, and telling my story about paying extortionate fees. Mm. and explaining how many people this affected and getting that across to people who didn't agree and getting into debates and arguments. And I think you have to do more than talk to people you agree with, right? And this is something I find really problematic about, about a group like Extinction Rebellion. So I was recently at a breakfast at a friend's house and there were some people who are in Extinction Rebellion and they were there. Yeah. And one of them was saying to me, oh, I just have curated my feed so I only see things from people I like. And I was like, oh, no, that's oh, no. the problem. The echo chamber. Yeah, you yeah. can't do that. Like, you have to talk to people who disagree with you. That was Go there. one of my main rules. Of yeah. my, I never went and spoke to friendly groups. I said, my time, it's lovely speaking to them. They all stand up and cheer and they shake your hand and you come away with a nice warm feeling in your tummy and then you stop and think, what the hell have I achieved? And the answer is, damn all. Wow. I only went to anti or neutral audiences. So I built the campaign on speaking to women's groups. Women's groups were extremely important. There were many of them from the women's um, the, the Women's Institutes of the National Council of Women, which the government listened to, and I targeted those because at the beginning of our campaign, we took it when the first Labour government came in, Harold Wilson, we went to see him in Downing Street. And his response this, this is a petty middle-class Hampstead reform. Come back to me when you can prove it's what people want. Oh, wow. 
And the committee. <laughs> Harold Wilson. Harold Wilson. Wow. Was. The committee of the Abortion Law Reform Association decided we had to show it was what people wanted. Yeah. I then quite quickly was able to say we had four million women on our side because that was the combined right. and that, membership that of is, the big organisation. And that's a big number yeah. to have. But that is how you bring about change, right? Yeah. And I think obviously I was out every night of the week all over the country. Really? Group. But that's that's how what I hope we'll be able to do by making more people aware. But you see, you have those women groups now. This is where you've got to use social media. Exactly. They're, they're the, the mess. But that's what we did with the letting fee campaign as well. Was we were able to show how many people cared and how many people were affected. Exactly. Yeah. Because they'd signed the petition. And then the politicians were like, oh, this is something that will make us look good. Exactly. So what we need is for we need women to, to know that abortion is still a criminal offence, Yeah. to be angry about it, and then it will change. And I, I think the same is true of climate change. Yeah, I've got two questions, for e- one for each of you. So, Diane, over 50 years after the 1967 Abortion Act was passed, you're still campaigning for abortion rights. Why are you still fighting? And what would you like to see change? I am still fighting because I feel partially responsible for the worst bits of the act, the ones we want to get rid of. And I was part of the group that brought it about and allowed it to happen. I'm not sure I could have stopped it, but I was part of the group uh, and spoke in favour of the law for the two things, and one, hooray, is Northern Ireland. I was very, very unhappy about making an exception for women living there. I could see no good reason except to shut the equivalent of the DUP up. And the other, which I'm still campaigning for, I never, ever believed it was right that two doctors should be given that amount of control over a woman and what she did with her body. And I shall go on campaigning against that with my last breath. We've done it now in Northern Ireland and we need to do it here to give women control of their own facility. And Vicky, what was it that made you sit up and just think, okay, I need to do something about this? Well, I've reported on abortion a lot um, over the last few years. So like going to Northern Ireland, um, I did a report from a clinic in Manchester that's besieged by protesters. Obviously, now um, I've been to the clinic in Bournemouth and I've written a lot about it. And I knew about the 1861 Act from talking to BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. And I think my editor at Refinery, Gillian, wanted to do something to show that we we have this platform and we want to make a stand for our readers and do something useful and we were chatting and trying to work out what that could be and I'd just written a story I think about um, buffer zones and I said well why why not draw attention to the 1861 act I don't think most people know about it and she was like yeah that's what we should do most people in the office don't know Um, so I think it was a slow burn 
as as it so often is something I've interviewed I'd interviewed you before and I wanted to draw attention to it and make people aware that like a Victorian law still technically means abortion is a criminal offence that's completely wild and the existence of brilliant publications like Refinery29 yeah. um, means that we can do that if you have a platform why not use it to try and do something useful I think and I think my final question for both of you is just if people listening to this podcast feel like they want to join in and help you what what can they do to you know support that I am a criminal campaign sign the petition definitely which is on change.org I think women have to fight for themselves they have to look at themselves particularly those who've had abortions they have to recognize that unfortunately it's a privilege that they have that that privilege can be taken away and they almost have a duty to ensure that that privilege is there for their daughters and their granddaughters they have to speak out they have to talk in private about having had an abortion to their friends and they will find how many of them have had the same experience and above all they have to take a leaf out of the anti-abortion campaigners book and bombard their members of parliament with letters every time the subject comes up thank you so much to both of you do you want another coffee i could have offered if you liked this episode of history becomes her please subscribe rate and review If you have suggestions of history-making women we should feature on our podcast, or you simply want to get in touch, find us on Twitter at HBHpod. And you can find me on Twitter at RVT9. History Becomes Her is a mashable podcast created by Rachel Thompson and Maria Demenzi. Our artwork is by Vicky Lita. Our music was produced by Christiane Straker. Special thanks to Shannon Canellan and Nikolai Nikolov. And why not check out our sister podcast, Fiction Predictions? Thank you so much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.